Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. Just a note, as you might have already guessed, this interview touches on some explicit topics, which includes sex work and sex trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. A coalition of sex workers, allies, and lawmakers are encouraging Oregon to decriminalize sex work. They say current laws punish consenting adults who buy and sell sex, which is distinct from sex trafficking. But how would that work really? And how will this be different from the messy process we've had of decriminalizing drug possession in the state? So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Elle Stanger, a Portland-based certified holistic sex educator, sex worker, and host of the They Talk Sex podcast. They're here to walk us through what decriminalizing sex work in Portland could look like. It's Wednesday, July 26th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Elle, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me, Claudia. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Take that again. You just have a very good radio voice. Thank you. I have a good phone sex voice, which is probably why I do phone sex also. So <laughs> I'm, throwing, I'm just I'm just throwing it at you. <laughs> it's a perfect intro to this interview, really. I love it. What's the legal landscape currently look like for uh, sex workers in Oregon? So it depends what kind of sex work you do. Um, we today are probably going to be talking about anti-prostitution laws or prostitution-related laws. Very specifically, we're talking about the ones that punish people either for selling sexual services or paying for sexual services that are not included in our vast landscape of strip clubs, webcam, bikini barista, and many other types of sex work. Um, and as someone who's done so many types of sex work over the last 15 years, one of the beauties of this work is that people should be able to choose what they're comfortable with, what their prices are, clients that they can say no to. But the laws don't respect or acknowledge consent, and they punish not only people seeking to transact with the providers, but these laws actually hurt the, the providers as well. So, Could you explain uh, how our model of um, criminalizing sex work might be different from other states. Uh, yeah. I believe it's something about the Nordic model. And I feel like people hear that sometimes they don't quite understand. You know, some a lot of people actually think our sex work is decriminalized already, but it's not. Certainly not. The Nordic model, based out of Norway, or the Swedish model, originated in Sweden, are basically the same thing. They're a type of partial criminalization, which focuses on fines or detainment or arrest or citation or punishment of clients. Not only clients, but sometimes what is called third-party facilitators. So 
The argument is that by preventing sex workers from interacting with clients, we are being protected from their violence or their abuse. This is the assumption that all clients are violent, uh, which is absolutely a byproduct of purity culture thinking. Um, So third-party facilitators might look like someone who is helping the sex worker do their job. This could be someone who drives them to their appointment. So that could be my bouncer that I pay or my boyfriend or my husband or my wife. It could be um, if my partner helps book my appointments or if they act as security. Everything that I might need to make my job safer or more streamlined, uh, those people are punished. And the newspaper calls a lot of these people who are targeted in these anti-prostitution stings human trafficking participants. These people are commonly mislabeled, these clients, these Johns. And this is because when you tell the general public that you're preventing sex trafficking, people are more likely to support it than if you tell the truth, which is that you're using anti-trafficking funding money to target clients in anti-prostitution stings. About 88, 89, 90% of the so-called decoy stings that were hosted in the last five years by PPB resulted in solicitation of prostitution arrests. So they're targeting clients. This is not a great way of preventing trafficking. And also, if you're a sex worker and you see the cops out harassing your clients, maybe harassing you, arresting your clients, watching you, surveilling you, why the heck would you feel comfortable going to the police if you do need rescue from a pimp or an abusive right. you know, spouse or partner or parent? So what I'm hearing is that the Nordic, the Nordic model, it's like fake progressivism in a way. Yes. Uh, because it's saying, oh, we're saving the sex worker. We're not penalizing them. We are penalizing, you know, the, their customers. And that way, you know, everything's everything's fine. We should be... Grateful. Yeah, we'll just find other work in this great economy of jobs falling off the job tree. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, as you mentioned, um, people talk a lot about human trafficking when they talk about sex work. Uh, But what's the difference in what your group, the Oregon Sex Workers Committee, is proposing? You know, how would it change sex trafficking laws? Uh, Because from my understanding, they're both currently intertwined. Right. So people who do sex work are more likely to become victims of trafficking under criminalization because we're more likely to be extorted by our clients, by our family members. And that can look like, I know what you do for a living and I'm either going to turn you in or your clients if you don't X, Y, Z for me. Um, A lot of people on Oregon Sex Worker Committee have actually worked in all kinds of places. Some of us have survived human trafficking from either a partner or a a caregiver. And some people have been incarcerated in police stings in other places. So Oregon Sex Workers Committee members, most of us live in Oregon, but we do have people that attend from around the world because we have Zoom meetings. So I consistently hear over and over again example of why people would be safer and be more likely to report crimes against them when they're in an environment that doesn't condemn their labor. So quick example, my friend, uh, former board of director on the committee, she's over in New Zealand. She's worked around the world. She has dual citizenship to the states. So she's very familiar with criminalization here and then also the 
the more freedoms that she has over New Zealand. She had a client, uh, she had an escorting client stealth her during an appointment, remove the condom without her permission. Oh, no. Right. Um, And turns out in New Zealand, they take that very seriously. And she was actually able to press charges. She's not a fan of cops, but she says she remembers when she was at the police station in New Zealand and the cop that she made the report to said loudly, doesn't matter what you do for work. No one should have been able to do that to you. That would not happen here in the United States. In most states, you asked earlier, I'm sorry, what is the difference between Oregon and other states? So Oregon is not as bad in the fact that we don't target sex workers like Florida, Ohio, Texas. They do stings all the time arresting sex workers. Uh, I have a photo I use in teaching of a... 2019 prostitution sting in Los Angeles County and it's all these women lined up being arrested for working and they're all women of color because again the people who tend to be the most targeted by law enforcement or traffickers or pimps or other you know powers that be entities um, are people who are more visible and less resourced so they're less likely to have a car or maybe solid shelter Um, but they're more likely to be on the street. So Oregon likes to think it's a very progressive place, but we've struggled quite a bit to have compassion with the unhoused and with drug users. And I, I do anticipate a lot of opposition to decriminalizing in Oregon because one of the biggest arguments I hear from people who are opposed to decriminalizing is they say, well, I don't want to see prostitutes all over the place Mm. on the street. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, let's get into the study the legislature funded regarding decriminalizing sex work in Oregon. You know, this session, the legislature uh, allocated funding to study the advantages and disadvantages of decriminalizing sex work. So I know that you have eyes on this. Um, And we're still waiting to hear details on how those studies will come together but what would you hope they look into specifically? Mm, I hope they study what money is spent on decoy stings. Like I already know, but more people need to know. I hope they study the unmet needs of people locally, such as service requests to shelters or organizations. You know, how many people do they have to turn away? How many youth do they have to try to refer elsewhere or have nothing for them? Those two things offhand, I think definitely because it shows unmet needs and then unnecessary actions. Yeah. You know, we heard a lot about Measure 110, the recent law to decriminalize drug possession Mm -hmm. and all the problems it caused because decriminalization came first. And there was, of course, no infrastructure for support, um, you know, to, to give people help. How are you proposing this would be different? Because if I hear, okay, we're going to decriminalize everything, I also do see how sex trafficking could get a leg up if there's not something in place. It's like, how do you think this would shake out differently than 110? So 110, yes, it wasn't delivered with all of the other things that may uh, relate to the populations it claimed to serve. Mm-hmm. I absolutely disagree with you that decriminalization of prostitution laws would make trafficking more likely because it always does the opposite. Because 
if sex workers know that what they're doing is not a crime, they're more likely to report, you know, the maybe serial killer to the cops. If clients know that what they're doing is not a crime, they're more likely to report the scammer who showed up at their door trying to burglarize and rob them, who was not the girl on the dating app who said she was. This Mm -hmm. is also something that happens in Oregon a lot. Scammers can get away with more scams when they scam would-be clients because the clients know that if they report to the cops, they could get in trouble. So if anyone's worried about trafficking, then decriminalization is a great way to start because then you're encouraging the people who are most at risk to be less underground. Right. I guess my point was, do we need more infrastructure to help before we decriminalize? Or do you think it's one of those hand in hand things? Oh, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes because sense. Because I feel like we don't have, you just stated like, there's not enough there for victims of sex trafficking. Okay. There's not enough there. So imagine me hearing that someone who's not at all, you know, knowledgeable about your world and the work that you do. And then all I think about is like, we had the exact same setup with measure 110. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. And so like, how could someone work through that with you? Right. Okay. So something that Portland, Oregon could really do is we need to expand the organizations that offer support. So like Call to Safety is one. Uh, SARC, Sexual Assault Resource Coalition out of Beaverton is another. We could fund a lot more things like that. But if there was a mass media campaign... Um, a lot of people don't watch TV anymore, but in airports or sometimes in bigger cities, you'll see signs where it says, are you being forced to work? Are you being held captive? You know, we see stuff like that. Yeah, I totally see those. Yeah. So instead of police arresting men who want to receive touch, what if we made our entire population aware that sex work is not a crime If you've been doing it and you want out, here's the numbers you can call. Here's job assistance. You know, here's non-officer intervention. That could be an expansion of Portland street response too, actually. Um, And just let people know if you are being, you know, if someone's holding all your documents, taking all your money, telling you which clients you need to see, you have people you can call because currently that does not exist. No one's going to call 911 if, again, their pimp or their parent has been saying, what you're doing is illegal and what I'm doing is illegal, but you're going to be the one who gets in trouble because pimps and traffickers are way better at hiding their paper trails. This is what some people do for a living. People who are used to controlling relationships, holding other people's documents, making them feel bad, making them feel isolated. Uh, So we really just need to make resources available for people who are scared and don't know where to go. And also, if you're an immigrant, a lot of immigrant labor can devolve into trafficking because you're talking about people who maybe paid money to transport over here to another country. They couldn't tell you where they are on a map or maybe they don't speak the language. And now maybe they're in a working situation they cannot get out of. Police are very corrupt in many places all over the world. So again, a lot of folks are not going to feel like the cops are safe because historically they're not, especially in places where sex work is criminalized. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I I guess it does in a sense, but I'm also just, uh, I guess we'll get there when we get there. (laughs) But um, making sure that if we do put something up to vote for decriminalizing, 
sex work that we do it a bit more carefully and thoughtfully than Measure 110. And that all this infrastructure that you just spoke about, all these ideas about, you know, okay, here are the, um, here's a safety net for sex trafficking victims, that that is put into place before the mass decriminalization. Does that make sense? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, Elle, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for clarifying some points. Um, we'll put some links in the show notes for, for anyone listening that wants to learn a little bit more. Uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing and thank you for everything. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks for taking time to understand these issues. And now for your microdose of news. We have our first candidate for next year's Secretary of State race. State Treasurer Tobias Reed says he'll pursue the Democratic nomination for Oregon's second highest ranking political job in 2024. He lost the Democratic primary for governor to Tina Kotek last year. And some good news from last week's major fire at a former East Portland Kmart. Initial tests of debris from the Park Rose site showed asbestos, but subsequent testing has found less than was initially feared. State officials say the company that's currently leasing the Kmart building is covering the cost of the emergency response. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slips. <laughs>